The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning, everybody. How is how are we doing? Good, good. So if you would open up your Bibles to Malachi chapter one. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 14 today. Maybe this is your first time with us, and you're not sure where the book of Malachi is. You probably are familiar with the book of Matthew is, so find that, and then turn a couple pages to your left, and you should be able to find Malachi. So Malachi chapter 1, verses 16 through 14 is where we're camped out. Um, And so this will be our third week into our study, and we're really kind of picking up steam Two weeks ago, we looked at Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. We unpacked a lot that week, just one verse. But then last week, we increased that number by 400%. We looked at four verses. This week, we're looking at nine verses. So who knows, next week, we may be done with the book of Malachi. We're really picking up steam. And so that being said, these past two weeks, I think, have been really important for us. And I think we need to refresh our memory in order for us to properly understand what's been going on or what is going to be said in our passage today. So let's refresh our memory really quick. The the book of Malachi begins with a statement, that statement being this, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And so we learned two weeks ago that the word oracle brings with it a burden, meaning there's there's a weight that comes from this book. When God speaks, we listen and we listen closely. Verse 1 should leave our heart racing a bit. The, the Israelites, they would have heard this and there would have been a, a burden that comes with this. Two weeks ago, one of our pastoral interns taught on Sunday night and he gave this really helpful analogy of when he was called to a principal's office or when he got in trouble as a kid and that suspense, that weight of, oh no, I'm in trouble. You can get that feeling? Well, as great of an analogy as that is, I think it pales in comparison as to what we would feel in relation to God. This feeling of suspense that we feel with the created, can you imagine the suspense that one would feel in relation to the creator of all things? An oracle, a burden of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. What we have seen is that Israel has failed to do what it was called to do, and as a result, they are on the receiving end of a firm correction, a stern rebuke. But the beauty of the book of Malachi is, as we saw last week, and as Kyle pointed out, God does not begin with the you, but he begins with the I. And so what we mean by that is that before God addresses the sin of Israel, he first reminds them of his love for his people. He says, I have loved you. And to be honest, this isn't a a trend that we just see in the book of Malachi. This is a theme that we really see all throughout scripture, particularly in New Testament letters. So many years ago, we went through the book of Ephesians, for example. And in the book of Ephesians, you see the first half of the book is really essentially doctrine first. This is what God has done for you in Christ. And so if you have placed your faith in Jesus, this is who you are. This is what God has done for you. He unpacks that. And then the latter half of the book of Ephesians, he then begins to address application. You begin to see rebukes. This is what your life should now look like. And so really, you see this theme of doctrine first. This is what God has done for you. And then application second. This is what your life should look like. Now go and live this out. 
And so repentance is not something that we do in order to earn God's love. It's a response to God's love. It's a result of God's love for us. So we have to constantly be mindful of this truth. We must never forget the beauty of the gospel. The summary of the Christian faith is not clean yourself up in order to receive God's love. No, as a result of God's love for you in Jesus, repent and return to the Lord. This is the beautiful reality of the gospel. And so last week we saw that before a finger was raised to point at God's people, God reminds Israel of his love, his covenantal love for them. So we also saw that Israel was very skeptical of God's love for them. God says, I have loved you. And Israel responds, how? How have you loved us? And Kyle, very jokingly, but yet very serious, says that this should have been the end of the Bible. God says, I have loved you. They throw up their hands. How have you done this? God smotes Israel. That's the end of the cosmos. The end. That's how it should have ended. But yet God chooses to lovingly remind them of his covenantal love for his people. He reminds them that he has lovingly chosen them and how he has been faithful to the ones that he's loved. And so at the end of last week's passage, as the conclusion of this, we saw that Israel's eyes will see and that they will exclaim, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So God's love for Israel, his faithfulness to Israel, will lead to them shouting, great is the Lord beyond our border, beyond the border of Israel. So what we see is God's greatness isn't just limited to one particular moment during one particular time for one particular people. No, God's greatness will stretch beyond their borders to the ends of the earth. And this was God's plan from the beginning. You see this in Genesis and all throughout Scripture. Now, I think it's, that is vastly important, very important, and we need to put that in our back pocket because this idea of God's greatness being stretched beyond the borders of Israel will resurface today in this week's passage. Because what we will see in our passage today is this, that the name of God, though dishonored and despised, will be great among the nations. This, in summary, is our passage today. And so in our passage today, we will begin to catch a glimpse into the corruption of God's people during this time, particularly within the hearts of the priest. Yet despite this corruption, we will also see where God's name will be great among the nations. So the corruption of his people will not hinder the greatness of his name being extended among or beyond the borders of Israel. So similar to last week's passage, we will see Malachi taking on a similar form of writing. You'll find an accusation or a statement being made by God, followed by an anticipated objection from Israel, particularly the priest in our context today, which is then followed by an answer to the objection, bringing closer to the original accusation. And this answer of God ultimately provides both conviction and hope for his readers. <clears throat> so with that being said, let's read and unpack this passage today. It's a lengthy one, so let's go ahead and dive in. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? 
And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its food, that is, its food may be despised. But you say what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So like I said, that's a, that's a very lengthy passage. So let's go ahead and unpack this. What we see here in verse 6 is an accusation a strong claim that the name of God is being blasphemed. A son, is, a son honors his father, a servant, his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So God's first rebuke in the book of Malachi is directed towards the priest. The priests were primarily the ones who accepted sacrifices from the people of God. They were the mediators between God and his people in the service of the altar. The people of Israel would bring their animals that they wished to sacrifice to the priests, and the priests would offer the animals to the Lord. Sacrifices were the means to which acceptable worship was to be offered to God. And so the sacrificial system was instituted by God for God's glory and for his honor. And God required animal sacrifices in order to provide a temporary covering of sins. And what we will learn today is that these ultimately were designed to be a shadow of what was to come in Jesus Christ, our Savior. As the book of Hebrews tells us, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this was a very important role that we see. So God, in addressing the priest, begins this rebuke by referring to everyday relationships in order to capture the priest's sinful attitudes towards the Lord and uh, convict them. And so in your Bibles, what type of relationship does he first refer to? It's clear in verse 6. God first references a son's relationship to his father. A son honors his father. And this should have been an obvious statement. This isn't rocket science. This isn't earth-shattering to the priest. This would have been a, yeah, obviously, a son honors his father. The Bible's clear in the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother. 
so the point that God is going to be getting at here is that if it's expected that a son should honor his father, then how much more should it be expected that we should honor God, our father? And then God draws their attention to a second relationship, one that they should be just as familiar with. God references a servant's relationship with a master. And again, this would have been an obvious statement. It's expected that a servant honors and fears his master. The Bible's clear on this. And so if it's expected that a servant should honor his master, his earthly master, then how much more should we fear and honor our heavenly master? Both of these statements would have been obvious. Yes, duh, a son honors his father. Yes, duh, a servant honors his master. And God would be then saying, okay, good, you got it. If I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I am a servant, where is my fear? And so if the former statements are obvious, then the latter statement should be obvious as well. If it's obvious that a son honors his father, then it should be obvious that we should honor our master. If it's obvious that we interact with the created in such a way, then it should be obvious that we should interact with the creator in such a way. Yet, captivated by a hardened heart, the priests have neglected their obvious duty, and they've begun to despise the name of the Lord by not showing him honor and fear. So this tells us that a particular attitude and posture of heart that one should have of the Lord. There's a particular honor and um, fear that we should have for the Lord, yet the priests here are showing no honor. They have no fear of the Lord. They are despising the name of the Lord. The word despise means to think light of and demean something. It's the act of conveying insignificance or worthlessness upon an object, idea, or individual. And so the people of God have sought to demean the name of the Lord with their actions, conveying that he is insignificant and worthless. But how? How have they done this? How have the priests despised the name of the Lord? What have they done to not show God honor? How have they not feared him? This is the very question that the priests begin to ask. In response to God's accusation, Israel asks, how have we despised your name? What have we done? What's the issue here? I'm confused. And I think in retrospect to last week, I can imagine them saying, look, God, the issue's not here with us. The issue's with you. You're the one who doesn't love us. It's simply paying honor to where honors do. If you've forgotten us, if you've pulled back your love from us, then why should we honor you with these sacrifices? You begin to see how their heart and heart is beginning to overflow into their actions. Israel's joy had begun to be wrapped up in their circumstances. And so they had this idea of what prosperity should look like and what blessings should look like and what their reality didn't match up with that idea. And so therefore they had assumed and thought that God had forgotten them and removed his love for them. So I think what we're seeing here is Israel's skepticism being exposed through their sinful actions. Last week in verse 2, we saw Israel's skepticism of God's love in full force. God declares his love for Israel, yet Israel immediately responds with skepticism. And as we might expect, their skepticism has spilled over into many other areas in their life, including their worship. A hardened heart will lead 
to sinful actions. So practically for us, this tells us that your state of your heart will eventually be exposed through your actions. It's not something you can hide. It will eventually flow out. And in the case of Israel, in the case of the priests, their skepticism of God's love is beginning to be exposed through a lack of honor and a lack of fear for the Lord. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name. And so before we go any further, if you read through this, you'll see a continual theme of the Lord of hosts being reiterated. And so the word host is a military term, meaning mass of persons organized for war. This name, Lord of hosts, was used to indicate God's sovereign rule over all heavenly powers. God created all and reigns supreme. The Lord of hosts was used to emphasize his creation and his rule over all things, especially his people, Israel. The name alone should constantly serve as a reminder to Israel that he is worthy of our undivided loyalty and worship. And so every time this is reiterated, there should be a a piercing of heart of, ooh, yes, he's the one who deserves my loyalty. He's the one who deserves my devotion. Yet Israel has done just the opposite. The priests have despised the name of the Lord. But somehow they're confused. They're asking what's wrong. They're asking what's the deal. They ask, how have we despised your name? Well, God gives an answer. He says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. Now, really quick, I think there may be a possibility for us to read polluted food and jump to a wrong conclusion. And that wrong conclusion being that we think that God is dependent upon sacrifices or dependent upon creation in order for nutrients, thinking that God's stomach is growling and he, he wants good food and he's upset that that's not the case. That's not true. God is self-sufficient. He does not need us. He does not need sacrifices. He is completely self-sufficient. We must not forget that God created everything out of nothing meaning everything that we see, hear, touch, feel, smell, every part of creation. We're created by God, through God, for God. God existed before all of these things existed. God never depended upon that which he created for survival. Therefore, God was not dependent upon sacrifices. Offering food upon the altar does not mean God was hungry and he was upset that the food was polluted. So the Lord of hosts was not upset because he was eating yucky food. No, the priests were offering polluted food upon the altar, meaning they were presenting deficient sacrifices to the Lord. They were offering sacrifices that God has expressly prohibited. And we know this because the Bible is crystal clear when it comes to Old Testament sacrifices. God's people were to offer their best, and they were to offer animals without blemish. And so as I began to read through this, I'm like, okay, they're legitimately confused here. And so maybe the Bible's not as clear. Let me see. So this week I went back and I read throughout the law to see if there was any loopholes. Maybe they would be confused. There's no loopholes. The Bible is crystal clear when it comes to 
sacrifices. So let me read to you several of these verses. And when I say several, there's a ton. Let me just fly through these really quick for us. Leviticus 1, 3 says this, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. So as you, we were going to read these, you're going to see a continual theme of the sacrifices that are being offered should be one without blemish. So Leviticus 1, 3, offer a male without blemish. Leviticus 1, 10, if his gift is a burnt offering, is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the side of the altars. Leviticus 3.1, if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Leviticus 3.6, if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. Leviticus 4, 2 through 3. If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the appointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sins that he has committed a bull from the herd, there it is, without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. Leviticus 4.23, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish. Leviticus 4.27, he shall bring his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sins, which he has committed. Leviticus 5.18, he shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock. Leviticus 6.6, and he brings to the priest as a compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock. And then Deuteronomy 15, 21, but if he has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Is that a little redundant? A, a little. Is that pretty clear? Crystal, right? But hopefully we get the point. The Bible's crystal clear when it comes to sacrifices being made. There's no getting around this. There's no loopholes Yet the priests are offering polluted sacrifices upon the Lord's altar. So how have the priests despised the name of the Lord by offering polluted food upon the Lord's altar, by offering animals that have blemishes? And look how the priests respond. They're looking at each other dumbfounded, distraught, perplexed at what God has just said. God, you're saying that we've polluted you? How? I would never do such a thing. I'm reading their responses, and I'm literally thinking, how in the world could the priest be so confused? How could they be so dumb? I was, I was reminded of probably how my wife feels when we're in arguments, right? How in the world could he be so dumb? It's crystal clear that he's wrong, and yet I'm just continuing on in my dumbfoundedness. Terrible analogy. Anyways, so as I began to wrestle through this, could it be that the priest had become oblivious to the law because of a lack of a concern for the law? And so as we just saw, the Bible is crystal clear when it comes to sacrifices. You're to offer animals that are without blemish. If it's lame, blind, or crippled, then you don't sacrifice it. But what are the priests doing? They're sacrificing animals with blemishes. We see in verses 8, verse 13, verse 14, that they're offering animals that are blind, lame, and sick, and this is evil. Look at this really quick. When you offer blind animals, look at verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? 
When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Go down to verse 13. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Explanation point. Shall I accept that from your hand? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. So we begin to see the corruption taking place. So the people clearly have animals that are without blemish, yet they are offering sacrifices to the Lord that are blemished, meaning they're clearly walking in disobedience to the Lord. So I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, did you read the law? If the priests have read it, if they've taught it, then they would know what they're doing is wrong. But maybe, maybe they have drifted so far away from God and his word that they're blind to what the word says. Because I think that when we drift away from the Bible, things that were once clear become foggy. I think we can all testimony or give a testimony to that. There's seasons in our life where we drift away, where we begin to get foggy of what, or develop a foggy idea of what is so clear in Scripture. Before you know it, godliness will be distant and you will be immersed in sinful disobedience. And my fear is that some of us today are oblivious to truths that are found in God's word because we are never in God's word. And so church, may this not be true of us. Psalm 119 verse eight. Starting it according to your word. So this has been convicting for me this week. Because I think the reality is, and we can all agree on this, is the more you go through life, the busier you get. You have a kid, you have another kid, you get a job, you get busy, you have hobbies, you have all these things. And before you know it, you have no time for God and his word. The busier we get, the more difficult it becomes to study God's word. But no matter how busy we get, may we be a people who lean into God's word who want it to dwell in us richly, who write it on our hearts because we want God to be glorified within our lives. May we not be a people who drift away from God's word. But what's an even scarier thought that I think we see in this text is that maybe the priests knew good and well what the law required, yet in their hardened hearts, they chose to walk in disobedience. I think that's the unfortunate reality that we see in this text here. I think we see in verse 13, the law to them was burdensome. They said, what a weariness this is, and they snorted at it. They snorted at the burdensomeness of the law. This is, this is pig-like, right? Maybe they did it in pig Latin, or maybe they were Gentiles, bad Jews. I don't know. Those were terrible jokes. They were... They were aware of what the law demands, yet they simply did not want to do it. So they compromised, and they kind of did it. They were partially obedient. They continued to offer sacrifices, sure. They kept that going, but not the sacrifices that the Lord demanded. So it, in this case, I think what we see is partial obedience is disobedience. So they were partially obedient in the sense that they kept on doing sacrifices. They kept on doing that, 
And they thought that that would be good enough. But yet they were only partially obedient, rejecting what God required. And God's saying, is that not evil? Partial obedience is still disobedience. So church, there's a legitimate temptation for us to do the very same thing that the priests are doing here. We can know the Bible front and back, yet deliberately choose to walk in disobedience. Or we can try to force ourselves to go through the motions, partially walking in obedience, thinking, I know what I'm called to do, but I don't feel like it. This is a burden. And you snort at it. So church, may we not overlook the danger of knowing God's word, yet deliberately choosing to walk in sin. The priests were offering to the Lord what was evil. And God returns to the way he started this rebuttal by referring to another earthly relationship. God says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? So you're doing things to me, your creator, your Lord, that you would never do to created beings, your governor here. So there's a serious disconnect between you and God right now. There's an issue here. Your actions are out of line. And he goes on to say in verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar. Shut the doors. Did you get the weight that is found in this verse? God's literally saying that he would rather have the door shut on his temple than have them continue on in their sinfulness that they are walking in. He's saying, you're wasting my time. Israel has disrespected and dishonored God. The priests have disrespected and dishonored God. They have despised and profaned God's name. They have offered irrelevant and half-hearted worship to God. They've served him out of joyless obligation. They've given God worthless, polluted, and potentially even stolen offerings. But smack dab in the middle of this is an interesting and beautiful statement. An interesting and beautiful fact or promise. Look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So in the middle, in the midst of Israel's hopelessness, God provides hope. The depravity of God's people will not thwart God's plan. God's name will be fact. It's going to happen. You can bank on it. His name will be great among the nations. So up until this point in this rebuke, there hasn't been much hope. God has exposed their sin. He has responded to their questions and rebuttals with more conviction. And he's even said that he wishes that some of them would come and shut the door on their temple. The priests of his people have despised his name, and God finds no pleasure in them. But in the midst of their defilement, God says this, this beautiful promise, fact, statement, this verse 11. So smack dab in the middle of this rebuke is a promise that God's name will be great among the nations. The dishonoring of God's name by the priest will not hinder the advancement of the gospel. His name will be great among the nations. But how? 
How can this be true? How will this be true? How will God's name be great beyond the borders of Israel, as we saw last week? How can this be true? How can God's name be great beyond the borders of Israel if within the borders of Israel there's defilement and pollution? Well, I think it's at this moment that we have to direct our attention to Jesus. Jesus, unlike the priests in our passage today, glorified the Father's name constantly through a life of perfect obedience. He never resented or fought the Father's will, no matter how difficult. Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, yet he remained without sin. He was spotless, perfect, and without blemish of any sin. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, laying his life down on the cross for sinful, defiant human beings like you and I, and like the priest and the Israelites in our passage today. But the story doesn't end there. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And so church, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He was the spotless lamb without blemish that we saw so clearly in the Old Testament. He offered himself to God without blemish, as Hebrews 9, 14 tells us. But Jesus isn't just the spotless lamb. Jesus is the only true and faithful priest. So as the book of Hebrews tells us, Jesus is our eternal high priest, constantly interceding on our behalf. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 says this, the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So church, time after time after time, we see in the Old Testament stories like the one we read today, where God's people, even his priest, fall short. And as a result, they were required to make sacrifices. Remember, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But listen, Jesus is now our high priest. He holds his priesthood permanently, as we see here. So we see corruption and defilement in the priests in our passage today, in the priests of the past. But we see sinlessness and perfectness in our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is able to save to the othermost those who draw near to God through him, Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So because we serve a risen king, we have hope, an eternal hope. This is the beauty of the gospel. What good news this is. Whoever, anyone from anywhere, anyone from any nation, Beyond the borders of Israel, who hears the good news of Jesus Christ, whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God has raised him from the dead will be saved, can be presented before God, holy and blameless and above reproach. Fulfilling what we see in this promise in verse 11 of Malachi chapter 1. Because of God's atoning work through Jesus, there is an open invitation to come to God through Christ. Christ has secured eternal redemption through his bloodshed. When we see Israel's failures, 
May we be reminded that we too have fallen short of the glory of God. But may we take heart knowing that Jesus remained faithful when we remained faithless. When we see the priest's wickedness, may we take heart knowing that Jesus is the only true and faithful priest that we need. When we see polluted sacrifices being made, may we take heart in knowing that Jesus was the only true unblemished sacrifice. May the good news of the gospel, God's love for us in Christ Jesus, compel us towards obedience. May we not feel nagged into half-hearted service. It's not the heart of the gospel. This isn't something, oh, I just got to keep trudging on and hopefully God will be pleased. No, because of God's love for us in Christ, we can now walk in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a great king, one in whom we should fear. His name is the name above all names. God's plan from the beginning has prevailed, and his fame has been stretched beyond the borders of Israel through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. How do we know this? Because we're here today. Fair? We're beyond the borders of Israel. The good news, the hope of the gospel has made it to us, and we can proclaim to him proper worship by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful truth. And so church, in light of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, by the goodness of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, let us pray. Father, we love you. And God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the conviction that it brings. God, I think we all resonate with the people of the past where we see that they continually fall short. God, that's our testimony. That's our story. But God, we see your faithfulness in the midst of it. We see you continuing on in steadfast love last week, and we see that continuing on in this week's passage in Malachi. So God, we praise you for the hope of the gospel, that that wasn't your plan B, that it was your plan from the beginning. God, I pray for anyone in here today who doesn't know you. God, I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. God, I would be willing to bet that there are some in here who have tried really hard to earn your favor, and it's become a burden, and they've snorted at it, and they view it as worthless. But God, I pray that the eyes of their hearts will be enlightened to the hope of the gospel, that they will find joy in your salvation, and that today that will be the day for that. God, I pray that the church here, that we will be... Um, faithful worshipers of you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, God, we love you, and God, we praise you, and we thank you for the hope of the gospel. Folks, as we continue on in worship, there will be some over in our prayer tent. If you need prayer, maybe you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you would like to today. May today be the day of your salvation. 
But let us continue to worship in song.